I think the things that kids find on the internet, they're gonna find anyways, and I mean, I probably found some stuff like too young and it was bad, and I mean, kids are really like malleable and they adapt pretty quickly. I think it's more of, I don't want them to become dependent on it. I think my parents were pretty good, like I didn't get a phone until I was in middle school and you know, started taking the bus and kind of needed a way to communicate with them. But I did like have access to like an iPad before that and stuff and like I could watch a lot of YouTube. And I think it's less of what can be found on the internet and more of kids just want to spend so much time on it. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about growing up online. Children and teens and anyone belonging to Generation Z face a markedly different landscape for their self-development than anyone before them. The usual routine of growing up that uh, us old folks have all experienced, so figuring out our beliefs and ethics, uh, measuring ourselves up against peers, doubting ourselves, questioning our identities, having our identities questioned, all of those experiences are magnified by the internet. The lines of friendship are reinforced and blurred by comments or likes on photos and videos. Bullying can reach outside of schools, in harmful texts or messages posted online. Entirely normal feelings of isolation can be negatively preyed upon in online forums where users almost radicalize one another by sharing antisocial theories and beliefs. And the opportunity to compare oneself against another, another who is taller or thinner or a different color, or who lives somewhere else, or who just has more friends, those juxtapositions never really go away, not online. The internet is forever present for our youngest generations, and from what we know, it's hurting a lot of them. In 2017, before we'd even agreed on calling the newest generation Generation Z, San Diego State University psychology professor Jean Twenge wrote in The Atlantic about what she then called iGen, a generation of teenagers and children dramatically shaped by smart devices. This emerging generation, Twenge found, spent more time indoors than outdoors, felt more comfortable at home than at a party or in a car, cared less about obtaining a driver's license, and dated one another less. Fast forward to 2021, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention surveyed nearly 8,000 high school students in the country and found similar trends. Again, according to The Atlantic, and this is kind of long, from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%. This is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. More than one in four girls reported that they had seriously contemplated attempting suicide during the pandemic, which was twice the rate of boys. Nearly half of LGBTQ teens said they had contemplated suicide during the pandemic, compared with 14% of their heterosexual peers. Sadness among white teens seems to be rising faster than among other groups. But the big picture is the same across all categories. Almost every measure of mental health is getting worse for every teenage demographic, and it's happening all across the country. Since 2009, 
Sadness and hopelessness have increased for every race, for straight teens and gay teens, for teens who say they've never had sex, and for those who say they've had sex with males and or females, for students in each year of high school, and for teens in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. We can find likely many, many valid explanations for these shifts, but several psychologists agree on at least one driver the increased use of social media and the increased necessity to be online. And that's really what's happening for Gen Z and their younger peers, right? They're not choosing to be online, at least not 100% of the time. Instead, they're being pushed into a digital first environment, often by their schools and their parents, often by us. We post photos of our children as soon as they're born. We make email addresses for them when they're still under 10 years old. We build a digital profile of our kids, and then one day, we hand that digital profile over to them, sometimes with little to no guidance. In today's episode, we're exploring this difficult transition to owning one's online life for both kids and parents, and perhaps predictably, there are at least two perspectives here, one from young folks and one from parents. We have two interviews today, one with a Bay Area teenager named Nitya Sharma and the other with Sarah Teer, co-founder of 1Password. Now, why 1Password? Because this week, Malwarebytes is not just bringing you this podcast. We are also publishing in partnership with 1Password a major report on growing up and raising children online. We will get to that report at the end of the episode with Sarah, and we will speak briefly about the many concerning takeaways, like how one in 10 kids has managed to obtain a secret device they hide from their parents, or how many parents refuse to ask permission to post photos of their kids, even though the majority of kids want that, or the bad advice on creating passwords, or the bizarre lack of requiring antivirus software even after buying it. Uh, Anyways, before we get there, we're speaking first with Nitya Sharma, whose main qualification here is that she's a teenager. Nitya, welcome to the show. Hello. As I said at the top there, right, there's a lot of um, dramatic statistics. There's a lot of worrying statistics, a lot of things about members of Generation Z suffering from increased rates of depression and anxiety and all of that. And, and just, I wanted to get away from stats. I wanted to get away from comparing 2009 to 2021. And I wanted to ask you something just kind of broad and simple here, which is what is the hardest part about being online today for you? I don't really care that much about being online and I don't really <laughs> think it's that hard. But I think that for a lot of other kids, if I want to hang out with somebody, I usually want to do it in person. I don't really like talking on the phone or texting or like DMing through Instagram or whatnot. And I think a lot of people treat that as their social interaction. And so a lot of people don't really feel like they're missing out on building relationships with people and having social interactions if they're doing it so much online. Like a lot of my friends are comfortable just sitting in front of their computer for nine hours a day. And that's their social interaction with people. And I can see how sometimes it's easy to fall into that trap because it's easier. Just want to do that. You don't have to be as vulnerable. You don't have to, you know, drive to a certain place, get your parents to bring you there, figure out what to do, deal with, you know, awkward silences. You can always just send people memes and have that be, <laughs> you know, replacement for awkward silence. But I just think it's boring and I don't like it a lot. And a lot of my friends do because they're into gaming and things like that. And I don't know, especially with like a lot of the people I know who game, that is their main social interaction because they can kind of hide behind a screen. 
And so it's hard for me because I feel like I can't really hang out with my friends in the way that I wanted to because of that. You characterize this as like people fall into this trap. Why do you think it's a trap? I think most traps that people fall into aren't necessarily anything like malicious that's out to get them, but it's just a habit that you fall into because it's easy. It's easy to just say, oh, well, if I wanted to hang out with my best friend, I'd have to, you know, if you can't drive, find my parent to drive me there. You'd have to figure out what to do. I'd have to talk to them nonstop for this amount of time. Whereas if I just call them on the phone, I can do it straight from my bed. I can talk about whatever. I can just like send them funny pictures and articles to keep us entertained. And then I can hang up whenever I want. And I think because it's so easy and because there's so much on the internet to distract you from actually having to talk to people, you could feel like you're having a social connection when I think it does fulfill a lot of people, but I think there's just a gap there and people kind of fall into the trap of just easy, quick connection. Do you find if you want to hang out with your friends and you say, let's meet up somewhere, do you get like pushback? Do you get resistance? I get a lot of people who need me to tell them three days in advance if I want to go get lunch with them because they're like, oh, my parents won't want to drive me. Oh, I have this homework to do. You know, oh, I have this to do. Oh, I have that to do. But then the same people will call me like three times a night. And I don't know. I just feel like, and I mean, I fall into it too where you just don't really know how to separate your time from like your social media time and your online time to your social life and your school life. And I think that balance gets really blurred with social media because social media, and it is fun time, but I forget that a lot. I forget that, oh, this is like time for me where I'm not focused on not being productive. And because that social element gets mixed in, I think that idea kind of gets lost because you're like, oh, I'm connecting with my friends this way. But then I don't know, people end up wasting a lot of time and I do too. And so people just end up not having time because they don't realize how much time they're wasting on social media. <laughs> That's such a great like observation, by the way, like it's extremely astute there that like we seem to waste time on social media and like it is fun. It's fun with quotation marks. That's what it's supposed to be. And people do have fun on it. But at the same time, it's taking a lot of time away. And like you said, just this thing where you if, if you're trying to get lunch with people, like if you're trying to hang out with friends, they require you to like schedule it a couple days i mean honestly it sounds dreadfully adult that's what like my friends do you know like because we like have jobs that take us away from things for all times and then we are starting to have children and so it's like we have to schedule things and knowing that you're already facing that is concerning is all i'm saying Um, well i'm a little bit different because i graduated high school early so i go to community college now so all of my friends are taking, like, a lot of them are taking a couple different classes from me, so I don't see them that often. So it's a little bit different. I did want to ask, like, what do you see as the good sides? When are you having a good time online? I think I'm usually having a good time online because I used to have TikTok. And when I had TikTok, I was not having a good time. Why is that? Well, it would suck, like, four hours of my day. I had to put a <laughs> lock on my screen time so that I wouldn't use it, like, more than three hours or something. But I let myself have it because, like, in the height of the pandemic... It made me so sad. I had to delete it eventually just because everyone's always posting like a video of them in a montage of their life. And I was really confused. I was like, the whole state is under lockdown. How are you like seeing people 20 times a day? But I didn't really understand. It was like a black hole of a time suck. So I eventually deleted it like two years ago. But I was not having a good time on TikTok. But now I have Instagram only really and like be real and stuff. I don't really have, I don't have Snapchat because I don't understand how it works. And... <laughs> I think on Instagram and Be Real, people, first of all, 
post less on Instagram because they see it as like a bigger of a deal. Like people get really worked up over what they post. So a lot of people don't post that often. And I kind of just like seeing what my friends are up to. I don't follow celebrities really because they post too much. <laughs> and I don't know. I feel like everyone's inherently a little bit nosy. And that's why like as much as we like to like, brag and overshare on social media about our lives, I think people do want to see that to a certain extent. So I think it's fun just to get a little looks into people's lives and see what's going on. A lot of like the negative consequences that you've uh, mentioned are like time management, like they're sucking up time. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Do you find that that's a common theme amongst you and your friends? Like all of you, you talk about the time that it takes away. Yep. Because when we were in our high school, we got four hours of homework a night. It was kind of ridiculous. And so any time that was being wasted on social media was kind of like, it really mattered. And I think especially in the Bay, like, with how much school kids get and stuff, people are obsessed with, like, maximizing productivity. And I don't know, like, adults are like that, too. They're like, oh, I'm going to wake up at 6 a.m. and go do this all day. And I don't know, like, my parents are like that, too. But I think just, like, wasting time is honestly one of the biggest negative consequences my friends and I can see just because we're so limited in how much of it we have. Do you see just hanging out with people in person, do you see that as wasting time? I don't, really, because I like it. But sometimes it can feel like it because, I don't know, like when I was in school, you would just be with your friends during lunch or in a free period at school or you would have just time in class where you had finished all your work and your teacher just said, okay, we can do work now. And so those felt like they were non-manufactured and what else are you going to do at that time? But I was also always someone who would do homework during lunch because I didn't want to do it when I got home. And at certain points, I would prioritize not wasting time over social interaction and I don't know if it's really related to social media, but now I feel like it less because I'm kind of lonely. <laughs> and so when I hang out with my friends, like I do see the benefit. I do see how I'm happier afterwards, but still just, I don't know. I have a lot of work now. And so I still do feel that like, okay, well, you can't hang out for too long because I knew, you know, I have these this free morning before my class at whatever, 1 p.m. And I should spend some of that doing work. These feelings of like, you know, having to maximize your productivity, something that you know, adults absolutely go through and they suck. Like they're terrible feelings. Like I, like I have no other way to kind of like present that. We worry about that too. When we notice it, when we see, oh my gosh, the only thing that matters is like maximizing productivity. I mean, we have like 10 years ago, you know, there were a lot of companies out there that were like trying to replace breakfast, you know, trying to replace eating with like, you just need this like protein shake like three times a day. And that way you don't have to worry about food. And I feel like it's sort of the same thing that's happening here. Like, we shouldn't have to worry about social interaction. We shouldn't see it as something that is taking time away. And that's the same way it was with, like, food. It was like, don't you worry about lunch? And it's like, no, I do not because I am a, a normal, like, I'm a normal person. That's such a bizarre way to think about food. I wanted to go back also to something that you mentioned here, though, because I feel like maybe not all of our listeners have heard of it. What is the platform Be Real? It's basically this app. I guess some French company made it like two years ago, but now just like Americans are using it. And it sets off a timer at a certain time of day, but it's different every day. And you basically have to be real. So you have two minutes to capture a picture of your face and then whatever's in front of you. So it takes a picture on your front and back camera. And it's supposed to be really transparent because you can see like if people did that at a certain time or how many minutes late they did it and how many retakes they took and stuff. It kind of loses its purpose, though, because a lot of people will wait until a time for their day when they're doing something fun to take their be real and stuff. But it's still fun. And 
it avoids the endless loop of other social media platforms because you can't really scroll. You only see how many B-reels like your friends took. Because you there's like a discovery page where you can watch random B-reels of random people, but that's not interesting to anyone. Nobody cares. So it's pretty good because you only look at it for like 15 or 20 minutes a day. Something you said here, it shows you how much time has elapsed from the timer and also the number of retakes. Can you explain that more? So you get two minutes to take the B-reel and have it be considered in the B-reel time. And so if you take it in the two minute time, like since your B-reel timer went off on your phone, because it's the same for everyone, like the time, even though it could be different times every day on a certain day, it's the same for everyone. So if you don't do it in those two minutes, it'll say that you posted your B-reel this many minutes late from the B-reel time. And then retakes is basically like, everyone only gets two minutes to take their B-reel, even if they take it late. But in those two minutes, you can see how many times people retook the B-reel. So you can retake it multiple times if you want. What a wild like user interface feature, just to be like, this person was not the most B-reel they could be. And that's crazy that it like reveals that to you. You mentioned that you also enjoy B-reel because it's like, it's, it's shorter. It's like 15 minutes, you know, at the most, because there's a certain amount of time that you're going to be on it and that's it, you know, nothing more. Is there anything else besides like the time management aspect that you like more about B-reel compared to like other platforms? Yeah, I like that to be able to see other people's B-reel, you have to post a B-reel because well, Instagram is the only other social media I really have. But on Instagram, there's a lot of people who are just like silent users. They just look at other people's stuff and follow people, but they don't post anything and they don't even have a profile picture or anything. And I don't know, that's like kind of not the reason I have social media. Like, I don't really care about the memes and reels or whatever. Like, they're fun and I watch them when I'm bored, but I like seeing what my friends are doing and what they're up to. So I like that on Be Real, they are kind of forced to post every day. And so I get to see because, yeah, I'm just really nosy. <laughs> I like, though, that you were also like, you're not nosy enough to like look at what celebrities are doing. And I think there's also an aspect there of like, I don't know, they have teams, you know, they have teams of people who are curating their social media presence. It's like the polar opposite of what your friend is doing, you know, what all of our individual friends are doing. It, it is it is highly staged, one assumes. I wanted to move here a little bit and talk about like all of those things that I mentioned at the top of the episode, right? There's a lot of doom and gloom going on. There's like depression, there's sadness, there's, um, you know, people measuring themselves up against pretty much staged images on Instagram. Do you feel like you connect with any of those, like any of those concerns or complaints? Because everything I've heard, right, a, a lot of what I've heard, again, is that there's a pressure, again, to maximize time. But I haven't heard too much about like, oh yeah, like my friend is in a spiral because of this stuff. I just wanted to get your take on all those things. I don't, I think more of like TikTok, but also definitely Instagram. Like some of my friends, like a couple of years ago, especially during the pandemic when people were just on it nonstop, these people were, they already had kind of had some mental health issues and some of them like were depressed and I'm not really friends with them anymore, but I think they found a community online where they could kind of glamorize that and it kind of became like a label that they could box themselves into. And I think to a certain extent, it was like confirmation bias kind of working against them because they were like, okay, well, I can have this specific depressed person, sad person aesthetic, but I need to box myself into being depressed to fit that aesthetic. And so people, I think, made themselves worse that way. And a lot of people, especially like, over quarantine, their mental health kind of deteriorated because social media, like, it is obviously targeted and it'll show you more of what you want to see, basically, and show you more of what you would look at. So I think the more people kind of fell into that 
those certain like areas of TikTok and of Instagram, that's all they were going to see. And especially when people couldn't see their friends who were happy or who were like, you know, not in the same state as them. I think um, they kind of got sucked more into forcing themselves to be more depressed or sad or just like unhappy than they really were because it would fit that specific aesthetic. And that was where they could find a community who kind of supported them. So I definitely saw that happen like a couple of years ago. I am uh, extremely interested in that. That is a very nuanced thing to recognize. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of listeners may have never encountered in their lives. Uh, and I just want to be sure that I'm getting it right. You're saying that essentially people found communities that were supportive of, you know, at times mental health, of mental illness, of just uh, depression, anxiety. But then they found that those communities were also like reinforcing those conditions as like identities. So saying like, hey, you know, I am on the spectrum. And then they kind of had to perform that they were always on the spectrum. Like that's what they were showing one another. And so that they could be part of that community. Am I getting that kind of correct? Yeah, exactly. Like with one specific example, like of self-harm, I know a lot of people who didn't feel like they're, when they found kind of like that self-harm community on the internet, which is supposed to be supportive and supposed to encourage you to get better, a lot of times they didn't feel like their mental health issues were bad enough unless they were self-harming. And so they fell into that spiral and kind of decided that that was how they were going to validate their mental health concerns because I mean, people do really like labels. I think, I don't know, like I have some opinions on the whole gender movement and stuff, but people really do like labels and having certain, like a validation of their identity. I think that's why people care so much about like diagnoses and being diagnosed. And so a certain way, it was a way people could self-diagnose by making their disorders so extreme as to fit into that community and be accepted by them just so that they could kind of validate it to themselves. We had something like that when I was a teenager. There were people who were suffering from anorexia who found communities who were anorexics and these communities like became toxic it wasn't about like fighting anorexia or, or trying to improve you know one's health um, one's eating habits they started posting images of thin individuals exceedingly thin individuals and they posted it as inspiration and they like took the words like thin and inspiration and they called it like thin spo like thin oh, yeah, inspiration that's yeah yeah that yeah, yep that's exactly what i was on um and um it's just disconcerting to hear that it's it's still a thing but in like a different platform and for far more conditions for things like you said like self-harm where people felt they had to self-harm more and very much like you said you know people like labels. Actually, I wanted to ask on that specifically, because it sounds like you've thought about this quite a bit. Why do you think people like labels so much? Humans like groups. I mean, people are always searching for a group to have, like we're naturally kind of, we're social in a way, but we also just want to feel like there's a group or a community that we belong to, like that just sense of belonging. And I think having a label gives you that group or a place where you belong. And then to another extent, I think it also validates anytime you want to, you have a concern about your life. It validates that you are feeling badly and there's a reason you're feeling badly because you're like, okay, I have this certain either disorder or I'm part of this certain marginalized community. And I think that's that's why people like labels so much. Do you think the internet has made it like much easier to self-label? Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. I did want to move to a different topic here. And I wanted to understand 
How much of like your online experience have you felt that you've just needed to figure out alone? Because I think that's also a big part of this. You know, like we are uh, trying to find out, you know, whether Generation Z feels supported online by their family, by their friends, uh, if they have people to go to, right? And that's not just the things you encounter with anxiety or self-comparison or time management, but also just like the skills. And so I I did want to ask there like pretty much plainly, how much of your online experience have you felt you've needed to just figure out alone? I think most things you kind of just ask your friends, like, I don't know, especially with, like, my friends, if someone is going to post something, they're like, okay, guys, like, which picture should go first? Which one should go here? Which one should I post this one? You have to, like, send a picture to all your friends who are in it to make sure they approve. Then it's, like, 20 minutes focusing on what should the caption be, guys. I don't really do that because I don't, like, I don't think my friends follow me. I'm not, I don't know. But I also went to a smaller school and, I don't know, less random people follow me. But people definitely do that. And I there's definitely, like, that stress. But I think the only thing I've had to figure out alone is kind of the limit of, like, what to share and what not to share. <laughs> because, like, I went to France with my boyfriend this summer. And my parents let me go, obviously. But, like, some of their friends who follow me on Instagram would think it was, like, the worst thing in the world. And so I knew that they would be kind of, like, what if I posted that? Because then... Their friends would be like, who is this random boy in France? <laughs> but I still posted it anyways because they, they're not going to like monitor me in that way. And so I think kind of knowing what's oversharing and what's not oversharing is pretty important. Because sometimes you look at someone's story and it's like a picture of their feet and their like dirty house. And <laughs> you're just like, why would you post that? Um, and some people post like really personal memes about things that, I don't know, just not everyone I feel needs to know. But some people feel like that's the way to get their thoughts out. So I think navigating that is the one thing you have to figure out alone and what your kind of personal boundaries are with that. You mentioned at the top there, right, about these moments where you have to send photos to your friends to decide, you know, which photo comes first and then like what the caption is, like these 20 minutes of like deliberation of like what's happening there. What I'm getting from that is that people care quite clearly about whether or not a photo of them is shared. Is that right? Yes, definitely. So that what I'm what I'm trying to get here is that is there's like a lot of consent baked into the process. And um, is it a faux pas? Like, is it wrong to share like a photo with a group of people, but not like check with them first? Yeah, it, it definitely is. People would get pretty mad at you if you did that. Was that always the way it was for when you grew up? Like, is that just like that was there was never an alternative? And when I had Instagram when I was like 12, it was like a travel account. I just posted, like, random pictures of when I went traveling. And so I didn't really have pictures with other people for a long time. And once I did, which is once, once I started, like, wanting my Instagram to be kind of more curated and, like, nice. Yeah, ever since I, like, which was probably a couple of years ago. I don't know, everyone was already, like, 15 or 14 by that age. So they cared about how they looked and who saw them and how, you know, they, they were presented. So basically, yeah, since I've been posting other people, they've cared. And I've had to ask. That situation that came up with, like, you know, the friends of your parents telling your parents about how they felt about your pictures, is that something that happens with your with your friends as well? Do you hear about complaints where, like, oh, my gosh, you know, my parents' friends are, like, commenting on this, even though it's okay in my house? Like, I'm just trying to get an understanding of, like, who's watching who? I don't know, because for some other families, I feel like some kids just don't let their family friends follow them and stuff (laughs) i don't really care and i think a lot of people just have less 
family friends who are on social media, but I just kind of have a lot. And it's like more like my mom's sisters who would say annoying things because they also have social media. So I I haven't really heard it heard about it that much with my other friends, but they don't really ever post anything bad. It's usually on like stories that are private and you can hide people from, which is why so much de- deliberation goes into posting. It's because like that is what everyone can see. Do you ask your parents to see photos that they post of you? Do your parents ask you for permission before they post a photo of you? No, but I see them because I follow my mom, so I see what she posts. Would you like them to ask permission? No, because she doesn't post my face. Oh, okay. That's smart. That's good. When you were figuring out the boundaries of what to share, can you help me just understand more of like what that process was? Because it sounds like it wasn't just like... I think for a lot of like our listeners, right, they might think like, oh, I can't share something like that shows my address because like the things we're worried about is like identity theft, right? Like someone's going to find out where I live and they're going to match that information to a credit card that was stolen online and then boom, you know, they can actually access my credit card, something like that. But it sounds like what you were worried about is definitely more along the lines of like, what's okay, what's not okay to share. And so I just wanted to ask more, you know, what, what was that process like? What were you considering? Well, my account is private, so, like, random people can't see what I post. But there's still a lot of random people who follow me, like, just, like, acquaintances, kind of. And I think it's more like, if someone just started talking to you and told you, like, every single detail of their lives and you didn't really know them that well, you'd be like, what is this person talking about? Like, nobody cares. So it's kind of just, it's kind of just figuring out the balance between, okay, I want to share this with other people, but what do people actually care about seeing? Because there's like social capital in social media and you can kind of, like, I don't think you can expand it that much through social media, but there's a certain level of, okay, you you need to still seem like cool and you don't want to be posting too much because then it seems like you're seeking too much for external validation, even though obviously you are, because why else would you post anything on social media? But it's also just about like, you want to share when your life seems good and not when it seems too bad, but you also want to like be real with people and share when you're feeling bad. So, and then also the, the deciding which audience you should share to, because there are things on Instagram, like there's a thing on your story called close friends where you can choose who's on your close friends list and only share things with like a select like 20 or I don't know, some people have like a hundred people on there who are their closest friends and they could kind of share like whatever they want to. So deciding who you consider that to be, because some people have like 80 people in their close friends and some people have like five so I think that's interesting, like deciding your like social media sharing circle, because I do find that when people have a close friend, they end up posting way less on their actual story that everybody can see just because, I mean, the only people that they really want to share things with are those like people, but then you still let everyone else follow you for whatever reason. The way you're talking about your familiarity with like the features, like, hey, you know, my account's private, so I don't really have a lot of random people. Um, And, you know, you know how to use the close friends feature. It sounds like you're very comfortable with all of these things. And I wanted to then ask, you know, can you describe your parents' like online expertise? And that could be from cybersecurity. That could be like staying private online, just like understanding the internet in general. How would you say your parents fare like being online? My dad doesn't really know that much about it, but my mom does because she does marketing and then she had to teach a social media marketing class. So then she learned a lot, which she's always kind of known a lot because she is on her phone so much, like more than me, I'm pretty sure, and my brother. 
and she's always like reading articles and this and that so i think she tries to stay pretty with the times and yeah her instagram account has more followers than mine and she's she she posts a lot and yeah and she follows me and like all my friends and all my cousins and stuff and she recently got be real which was a deal low for her to be honest <laughs> that app is really should only be for kids but um yeah she's pretty involved I'd say. Is there like something like what do you wish your parents just better understood about being online today? I don't really know. I mean, I think that not everything is so dramatic. Like I know they care about safety and security and stuff, but I don't know to a certain extent if she understands that on my private Instagram account, I accept every single follower that I have. Because I don't think she really, like, she has a public account, and so she posts for everyone. And sometimes she asks questions like, oh, like, why are people posting this picture just of their face where they're smiling? And it's like, well, I mean, people are self-absorbed. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that aspect of it, like, the kind of it being your own personal modeling site, they don't really understand. Which, to a certain extent, is fair. Because, I mean, I don't think I would have really understood it. And my mom just kind of wants to show that, like, oh, look, I went to Vietnam and I saw this temple and this is my anniversary with my husband. Like, that's what she cares about and showing, like, her life and the cool places she goes. But, like, to a certain extent, she's doing that same thing. It's just that people do it with, like, their own faces and stuff. Is there anything that you wish they understood so that it would make, like, your life easier? I don't really know. I mean, I think their, their social media presence is fine. Yeah, I don't really know. Like, to make my life easier, I don't really post that much. And, I mean, I, I do. I post, like, pretty... Actually, that's not true. I post pretty often, but... I don't know. Anything that my parents wouldn't want me to post, really. Like, there are certain things that I'll still post just because... But to a certain extent, I feel like their boundaries are similar to my boundaries. And if it was something that my parents were like, ooh, this is kind of iffy, I probably wouldn't want to post it anyways. Just because, you know a bunch of other adults follow me and so i wouldn't want to like evoke that same reaction from everyone <laughs> moving like away from social media specifically i kind of just am curious about the same question and like as an example right when i was growing up our parents generation really didn't trust putting your credit card online it was a no you don't do it and now like that's silly right like of course you you have to put your credit, you have to enter your credit card information into websites. That's it. That's if you want to buy anything, if you want to live in a modern society, like that's how things work, unfortunately. And so like, I remember growing up, like that was a weird thing. Like that was a thing that I wish my dad just got, you know, like just stop being weird about this thing. <laughs> like we just need to put credit card information online. And so I'm kind of curious, like moving beyond social media, like the internet, again, is there anything that you just wish like your parents understood and sort of in the same vein, like it could make your life easier. I think it's not necessarily about something they could just get. Like, I don't feel like they have this huge gap. My dad does think that he can go viral, which <laughs> I, I don't think he understands how difficult that is. <laughs> to be honest, both my parents kind of think that they can go viral. And they, I don't think they understand how, like how actually hard that would be. And, I don't think they also understand that, like, people don't really care about a random person's 
like a random mother of two's travel account or a random like dad who does yoga sometimes his yoga account like people i don't think they understand that people care like i don't care about that stuff and it's like i wouldn't want them to go viral because to go viral you have to do like really dumb things <laughs> so i think it's that and then like in a more broader sense they this is not something about like they don't get it's just that they care a lot about cybersecurity, and i just don't like they always think the government is trying to like take their data and like use it to target specific things or political ads or whatever which they obviously do like that does happen it's just that i don't care like i don't i don't see what what is so bad that the government could do with my data like okay if they're going to target political ads towards me it's not like i'm a sheep like i can still make my own decisions and i don't know i just don't find it that like disconcerting just because i don't think i do anything that bad on social media that like it would get me in trouble and i also just don't see what's so bad that could be done with my internet data so I think we have a gap there where, I mean, they probably understand more than I do, to be honest, but they're always trying to convince me of that, and I, I just don't care. <laughs> that is the most painful thing I've heard. <laughs> I am coming from a different perspective. So, like, the government, the things that it would want with your data is not necessarily to serve you with political ads. Like, that would be, like, specific, like, lobbying groups would want to do that to sway you in an election. And I do, I, lo- I love hearing that you're like, hey, look, I'm not going to be swayed by an ad. That's great. It's fantastic. The government cares about your data when they're, like, trying to conduct surveillance and, like, they will grab your messages even though you are not a target. And so things like that are things that I deeply care about. But that's also like, let's not worry about that for, let's just, that's whatever. <laughs> let's, uh, that's its own thing. I did want to wrap up here with our last question, which was just, you know, when it comes to the internet, to being online, how would you do things differently, like with your own children compared to how your parents have handled things with you? I think the things that kids find on the internet, they're going to find anyways. And I mean, I probably found some stuff like too young and it was bad. And I mean, kids are really like malleable and they adapt pretty quickly. I think it's more of, I don't want them to become dependent on it. I think my parents were pretty good. Like I didn't get a phone until I was in middle school and, you know, started taking the bus and kind of needed a way to communicate with them. But I did like have access to like an iPad before that and stuff. And like I could watch a lot of YouTube. And I think it's less of what can be found on the internet and more of kids just want to spend so much time on it. Whereas, like, I would want my kids to go out and have fun and, or even not have fun and just, like, have to have to figure out ways to entertain themselves that aren't just being on YouTube. Because I think that's valuable. And I got a little bit of it, but I also think, like, around, like, third grade, I, like, watched a lot of YouTube and I thought it was fun. Um, So I think it's more of just the time. I would definitely put, like, a lot of time restrictions on my kids and how much they could be on the internet. And much less about, like, parental controls on what exactly they could see, because they're going to see it anyways eventually. Yeah, it sounds like also like something that you really prize and think is important is just this level of independence. Like they're going to find these things and they're going to have to figure out like how it works, but also like independence from the internet. You would prefer that they don't spend eight hours in front of a screen all day. Yep. Nitya, that's all I had. I wanted to thank you again so much uh, for coming on today's show. I do really want to stress that I think like you know, 70% of what you said for many of our viewers, they're like, what? I've never heard of that in my life. What is Be Real? So again, I really do thank you so much for coming on today's show and for just speaking very plainly about growing up online. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.
Before we move on to our next guest, I wanted to debrief a little bit because much of what Nitya said came almost as a surprise. Her concerns about time management were unexpected, at least to me. Her wish that her friends would spend less time on social media and more time in person was, I'm imagining, quite refreshing to many people. But her comments about what she's seen regarding depression and anxiety were far more alarming than I'd imagined, right? Because when you see the numbers that I rattled off at the top of the episode, massive gains in hopelessness, in sadness, it's easy to assume a certain flatness about it all. Uh, Kids are sadder today than before, period. Kids are more nervous today than before, period. But from what Nitya said, it isn't that simple at all. In just the one example she gave, it wasn't that social media makes people sad. It's that the instantaneous community finding allowed by social media can sometimes promote unhealthy outcomes. And what's frustrating is that the desires that Nitya described, teenagers wanting to find a community of similar people going through similar pains, teenagers wanting a label to ascribe to themselves, wanting to feel validated, those aren't inherently bad things. They're quite normal. For parents then, how do you prepare your children for such specific nuanced interactions with the internet? That question lies at the heart of much of the research that Mauerbytes conducted in partnership with 1Password this summer, in which we asked thousands of Generation Z respondents and parents about growing up and raising kids online. What are the harms? How do they stay safe? What has gone wrong? What do they wish was different? To talk about our research and to discuss the role of parents today in raising children with the internet, we are speaking with Sarah Tier, co-founder of 1Password. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely, Sarah. We're stoked to have you here. And we have covered so much already, and I wanted to dive right into the questions and right into this research that both of our companies have done. And we have just finished speaking with a teenager, right, Nitya, who told us about the difficulties of being online today. But we don't have to just rely on her stories, you know, to to get a, a full picture of this. We know that many children are having a difficult time online because of the research that we've just conducted. And we are releasing this week. Let's get into a little bit about that for parents. For parents specifically, what do you see as the most interesting or, or like eye-popping results that came from this upcoming research? There were a number of things that really caught my eye. And I think that overall conflicting sense of reality in general, where you know you look, you think you're getting something, but you're actually getting something else. So we saw 89% of parents saying that they're monitoring their children's activity online. And only 66% of teenagers, they said that they, parents have no involvement with their online accounts. So parents are thinking that they're, they're there, they're monitoring things, but the kids have always got their stealthy workarounds. And 72% of Gen Z kids are admitting to having tactics to avoid their parents monitoring. Some kids are going above and beyond with 13% having virtual private networks, 9% having a secret device that the parents don't know about, and 6% performing factory resets on their device. That number right there, that 9% of the kids that we surveyed have secret devices, almost 1 in 10, that's crazy to me. (laughs) Like, I don't know how at their age I would have procured a secret device. And I'm sure for the 9% of kids out there, they're like, it's actually really simple. I assume it's like 
a sibling's device that got passed down or was never like recycled, anything like that. But the idea that like a kid has two devices, like the idea that a kid has two phones, maybe like I'm conjuring these images of like, of that show Breaking Bad, you know, where like our main character (laughs) has two phones and like, it's a sense of incredible stress for him to have to hide this second phone. Like it's a plot point. And I'm, I'm just imagining kids going through this and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is such a wild thing. I could not have imagined or envisioned that. On that note, you know, on the sort of contradictory nature, parents think they're doing something. Kids say that either it isn't happening or they're finding ways around that thing happening, you know, like monitoring. Why are these findings important? I think it speaks towards the setting of habits, um, opening up communication, keeping that information flowing between parents and kids. Oftentimes there's this sense of parents say, this is what you need to do and this is what I'm going to tell you to do. And kids turn around and, and they don't feel like they're a participant in the information. So they're more likely to do the traditional teenager thing and just say, nope, I'm not doing it just because you told me to. And then it creates that sense of me against you as opposed to let's tackle this together. I like that idea there that you said, you know, let's tackle this together. A lot of what we found from our research is that that idea is important. There's like a role to play for parents in raising their kids. Of course there is, uh, but particularly about raising kids so steeped in the internet. And I was hoping you could just kind of further explain that, you know, let's tackle this together. Let's take this on together. What does that mean? And, And why is it important? My husband and I have always been very open with our kids and sort of discussing everything and trying to make sure if they have any sort of questions, we're going to answer that. And so part of that has been a bit of the show and tell type of philosophy where I get a random text message saying, oh my goodness, your TV account has been hacked. And, you know, instead of just, you know, ignoring that, which I know I should, I'm like, oh my goodness, hey, Abby, look what I got today. I got this text message. Do you know about this? Like, do you get messages like this on your phone? This is what we're supposed to do. This is how we're going to look to see if this is even real. Do I even have an account with this place? Let's look at this and sort of make this an experience together so that we can talk about it and figure out why these things are stuff we don't want to click on and figure out how to manage these things together so that we can have these habits and have that conversation so that when she's turning around and she's in a a group online and they're talking about meeting up at a place. Is she able to share her location? Shouldn't she be talking about where she lives? What kind of information can she share? That's all sort of already in there where we've talked about these things and clicking links and just sort of that general, how to be a safer digital person and sort of building those habits from a very young age. Where did you learn to do that? That sounds like such a smart approach. It feels so approachable. Like it's not a, hey, you have to read this article about like the 19 things you need to change on your iPhone and then tell that to your kids. Like it's like, no, let's go through the experience of being online together. And so I wanted to ask, where did you first learn that and find that out? Part of it is personal experience where we've all been teenagers. We've all had grownups who tell us what to do. 
And we've all seen how we learn information. And so I didn't always feel like I was getting that information from my parents and I was getting information from friends. And sometimes when you get information from friends, it's not exactly the correct information. So then you end up looking like a fool because you don't actually know things. So I've always been very keen to make sure I know things and I want to experience things. I've always dealt with the uh, kind of imposter syndrome, but also dealing with, you know, I know I'm not the smartest person in the room, and that's a good thing. I work with a ton of smart people, and I do that on purpose because I want them to teach me. And so part of being an adult is wanting to learn continually. And so in knowing that I don't know everything, I want to learn, and I want to bring others on the journey with me as I'm learning things. And so that experiential learning and everyone coming together is a big part of that. I also went to school for child and youth studies and combined it with psychology um, just because human behavior is fascinating to me. I think humans in general are, we're all completely unpredictable and yet predictable at the same time. And how can we use our information about knowing how we're going to try and interact with the world to make it a better place and how we can try to help others learn is a great thing. Bringing it back around then, you know, we've talked a lot about the many challenges that kids face today. For parents, then, we're not saying that there's one right answer, I think. You know, what we've done with this research isn't like, you should parent your children by these five bullet points. Um, that's not <laughs> only ever that easy. Every parent out there listening right now is like, wait, what? Can I have that list, please? <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have that list either. I am sorry. Um, no, flying blind over here. <laughs> but we did see that there was a demand actually from kids that there should be a certain type of role and there was room for parents to fill that role. And again, I go back to this idea of taking things on together. What is the role for parents who feel ill-equipped? We all were teenagers at one point and, you know, remembering how it felt when someone was trying to tell you something and oftentimes you don't feel like you have that control. So um, working with kids so that they have control, talking about things like that, Four out of five kids, um, their parents were posting images and videos and personal information about their kids online since birth. 39% were saying it's fine to start posting images of their children as soon as they're born. As your kids are getting older, who are you sharing that information with? All of a sudden, their friends are online. Your 12-year-old has an online account. They're now seeing those pictures. Are you talking with them about that? Again, you go to um, a cosplay event, your kid's dressed up, they've made this amazing costume, you want to share it, saying, hey, I love the effort that you've put into this, and I think you look amazing. I really want to post this online, and I want to post it to this account because, you know, your aunt in Texas wants to see it, your cousins over here want to see it, I really would like to post it. Can I do that? 99% of the time when you ask someone something like that, they're going to say yes. The kids are okay with it. They want their family and friends to see this. But just taking an extra minute to have that consent discussion helps them feel like they're in charge of their digital information so that they can control that as they move forward. And a lot of what I'm hearing here is that this isn't a role of saying, like, you have to learn every single security setting and you have to learn every single privacy setting and you have to be like some sort of tech whiz. Actually, all of the things I've heard so far are not based on technology. It's not like, you know, oh, you have to pull apart your iPhone. <laughs> the things we're hearing here are conversations. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of drill into that. You know, all of this, it isn't strictly technology based, right? A lot of the more common phishing attacks, scams, things like that, they're not 
preying on stealthy technology. There's no, um, you know, someone coming in and installing a secret USB drive in your computer in the middle of the night. It's strictly basic bad human behavior. I received a link, I clicked a link. It says I want $20, Mom, of course I want my $20. I didn't realize that by giving them your visa number that uh, that would be gone forever. It's little things like that that, you know, taking that time to think about things and be more critical when you receive that information, that, that's really important. I wanted to wrap up a bit here and understand what are the first steps then for a parent who is still very intimidated by this, you know, because we've said that this isn't, oh, you have to become a tech pro, but obviously there's still a far spot from like, I don't know anything to, I need to start having these conversations. And so for those folks who are intimidated by this, which is completely natural, completely normal, um, this is a new thing in parenting that frankly did not exist 50 years ago. Just wanted to ask, you know, what can their first steps be? How do we help guide them? I think looking at your own password habits, online behavior, all that kind of stuff. How are you acting online? And really look at your own behaviors and sort of say, how can I do this better? So if I'm telling my kids to be secure with their things and I turn around and I have a bunch of sticky notes with passwords all over it, I'm not setting a great example and I'm not keeping myself as secure as I could be. So how do I turn around and model that good behavior? What can I do to make sure I'm being more safe and secure online? and just reflecting what it is I want to see my kids doing. Oftentimes, the easier solution, something like using a password manager, it's easier because everything's in there. It's, it's not something that you then have to turn around and remember all your passwords. It's all just there. Once you've made that step, then it makes it easier just to turn around and share information so that when you're sharing you know, the streaming passwords or the Wi-Fi password, if you're doing it in a secure way and you're sort of making that step of, here's how we do it, Let's all go together. It's easier to take everyone down the path as opposed to, this is how you should do it. Go over there. I'm going to go back over here and do it the wrong way. I love that really quick example there of, you know, the sharing of streaming passwords, because I think a lot of folks, myself included, we were raised with this idea over and over again that you never share passwords. And there's a recognition now, you know, that like, look, some passwords got shared because not all of us are paying for Netflix. Um, <laughs> and recognizing that and addressing what's a secure way to share a password, I think is very important. And I think it's, a, you know, it's recognizing that there's real life applications that don't fit 100% with the things that we were taught 15 years ago and uh, change your own behavior and, and make sure it can be modeled after Part of it is just also talking with your kids. Part of this study that we did, 21 kids reported that they learned about online safety and security from their parents, but 62% believe they know more about online safe security than their parents. So take that as an opportunity not to feel like, oh, I don't know anything, but take that as an opportunity to say to your kids, hey, listen, I don't think I'm doing my passwords right. I'm not sure I'm doing things as good as I could be. What have you seen out there? What do you recommend? How are you managing all of these things? It's, it's remarkable how different technology is. Like when I grew up, email was just getting started. You're getting email, you're like, okay, I've got one, I've got two accounts. Now, you know, just for my son to complete his French assignment the other night, we're downloading extensions, we're downloading new software, we're uploading things. Like we use three different services to try and put together a fairly simple project, but 
when you think about how simple it isn't, it's remarkable. And there's so much more of everything online and that it's, how can we do things easily together? How can we just get things done? Because I don't think anyone spends a lot of time thinking, boy, I really want to be online and doing all of this. Like online tools, online everything, it's just a means to an end. How do I get this French project turned in and get a good mark on it? I do it by doing this. So you're not thinking about your online safety and security when you're granting access to this software program to record you and to collect your data, but you're having to trust a verified source and that you're hoping this teacher has looked at that information. They're making sure you're not downloading it from some generic site. All those sorts of bits and pieces go into things. And as you start to worry about all of that, it's very quick to get overwhelmed. And it's just a matter of taking that deep breath, remember that we're all learning together and just trying to go together through this world as we navigate it. Sarah, that's all I had for today's episode. Thank you so much for explaining these things in such a approachable and simple manner. I felt like I was, I was ready to have a kid. Um, <laughs> no slow. No slow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, not happening. Not today. Um, again, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on today's show. Happy to be here. Um, hoping everyone gets a chance to look through this study and really take a chance to look at their own password habits and how they're doing things. Um, making sure they're taking care of their digital safety and just hoping to continue sharing that information so that people can get on with their lives without being worried. That's our show. If you want to read more about our joint research with 1Password, you can find it later this week at malwarebytes.com slash blog, where we will break down the findings and link to the report in full. Forever Connected, the realities of parenting and growing up online. As always, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. For our next episode, we speak with Charlotte Morgan about how the theft of her bag led to someone impersonating her through her bank app, stealing thousands of pounds from her savings. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. <laughs>